Well, hello there. You might want to pull up a chair. I had a show that uploaded earlier today that was, well, kind of a scrambled mess. And um, <laughs> the, uh, the audio, even by, by my low standards, was just horrible. What I'm trying to do is um, show you the similarities between the swine flu, which happened around the 2009 period, and um, it, it shows the similarities between Fauci and all of them. And we're having a little bit of trouble here in the house, so what I'm going to do is this, is that <laughs> I have so many links to maneuver here, um, because here's the thing, I was looking into some different things, and what I found was that swine flu, flew past me, really, flew, flew past me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what caught my attention at first was there were um, cases of this Julian Barr syndrome, which I've talked about in the past. They talked about Julian Barr showing up with the kids, the Zika babies in Brazil. Julian Barr shows up with people I've talked about in the past, you know, the 1%, the celebrities who are taking um, hormones to transgender themselves. So, that keeps showing up. So. I don't know, so I caught this swine flu thing. I, I saw that it had this Julian Barr thing. And then I looked further and I thought, wow, <laughs> this is exactly what I want to show you, how all of these patterns just completely line up. And so what I tried to do was I just had, my house right now has so much electricity going through it, and I don't want to over-report what's going on because I'm probably one of the few people who knows they're being zapped in their homes, right? So I don't want to give them data, but I do want to say to you that um, <laughs> it's a little bit shaky around here right now. Um, so I've never shown, had this many links, and I wanted to make this show about them and their own voices, okay? Because that, I felt, would be much better to take a listen and just hear how they articulated this thing, right? And so I just got too many links <laughs> going <laughs> I was flipping back and forth, so always keep putting those feet in front of the other foot. So I thought, well, <clears throat> here's a new plan. I have the recorder on now, and I'm going to, and you need to look up, you, you get a lot of confusion with radiation, and then you get gets even worse with excessive electricity going through your body. <laughs> so I have it all lined up, and what I'm going to be doing is putting this on hold, and then I will start playing. I have three clips lined up, and I'll play those three clips, and then I'll go on to the next three clips, and you will hear exactly <laughs> what's going on. Doubtedly change. In fact, they'll probably change by the time you finish this video. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's take a look at how the current COVID-19 outbreak stacks up against the 2009 H1N1 swine flu pandemic. It makes sense that we're looking back to the H1N1 swine flu pandemic for clues about what the current COVID-19 outbreak has in store for us. The H1N1 swine flu outbreak was the last most recent global pandemic, and it shares many things in common with COVID-19, including similar symptoms and global spread. Although looking to the past can be useful, it's important to remember that no two pandemics are the same. 
While there's currently a lot we can learn by looking at the commonalities between the two outbreaks, it can be dangerous to base too much of our actions in the present on things that happened in the past without understanding the key differences. Both the current COVID-19 outbreak and the 2009 H1N1 swine flu pandemic were caused by viruses. A virus is a tiny microorganism that reproduces by inserting its genetic material into host cells, causing those cells to burst and die or become malignant. There are many different kinds of viruses, and they can mutate and change over time. And each virus causes different symptoms as it attacks our cells and our body tries to fight off the infection. The swine flu was an aggressive strain of the flu virus called H1N1 that infects the cells that line our respiratory tract. The outbreak was called the swine flu because this particular virus had been known to cause illnesses in pigs, but the 2009 pandemic was the first time this virus was known to infect humans. The outbreak started in the U.S. in April 2009 and quickly spread across the globe. Less than two weeks after the first confirmed case in California, the World Health Organization had declared a public health emergency that lasted until August 2010. The COVID-19 outbreak emerged in Wuhan, China in late 2019 before quickly spreading to other countries. The COVID-19 disease is caused by a virus called Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, or SARS-CoV-2. Like the swine flu, this virus that causes COVID-19 can likely be tracked back to animals. But scientists are trying to work out exactly how it made the jump to humans. While the H1N1 and COVID-19 viruses are similar in some ways, they actually belong to different virus groups. H1N1 is an influenza virus, but COVID-19 is from the coronavirus family, and it's more likely an extremely contagious viral pneumonia. H1N1 viruses have a long history of past outbreaks, more on that in a bit, but COVID-19 is a novel virus, one that has never before been seen in humans, making it tricky to look to the past for clues about the severity or duration of the outbreak. The fact that the swine flu and COVID-19 viruses are from different virus groups also accounts for the different symptoms experienced by those who contract the viruses. There's some overlap, fever, cough, and a sore throat are common symptoms of both swine flu and COVID-19, but there are many key differences. H1N1 swine flu symptoms typically resemble flu symptoms, fever and chills, body aches and fatigue. We're still investigating all the symptoms of COVID-19, but a fever and cough seem to be the most common. Other symptoms include headaches, sore throat, abdominal pain, and diarrhea. Complications from both viruses can include respiratory illness like pneumonia, which can be serious or even fatal. A major difference between swine flu and COVID-19 is how long it takes for symptoms to show up in the first place. Swine flu symptoms usually start within one to four days of contracting the virus, but COVID-19 is much sneakier. It can be up to two weeks before the symptoms appear, if they show up at all. Some people infected with the virus are asymptomatic, which is bad news when it comes to containing its spread. Viruses are spread through contact with infected people or surfaces. When a person with a virus coughs or sneezes, they release respiratory droplets that can be inhaled by someone nearby or end up on nearby surfaces or hands. Both H1N1 swine flu and COVID-19 can spread through these respiratory droplets, which can make their way to your mouth, nose, or eyes when you touch your face after touching an infected surface. Recent evidence suggests that the COVID-19 virus can live on surfaces like cardboard for 24 hours, steel for 48 hours, and plastic for 72 hours. Some viruses, like the H1N1 swine flu virus, can also be airborne. When people cough or sneeze or even breathe, they emit small particles called aerosols. These particles may contain the virus, and they can float in the air for a while before being inhaled, allowing the virus to spread through the air. Thankfully, so far, WHO has said there are no reports of aerosolized transmission of COVID-19. Even so, COVID-19 appears to be more contagious than H1N1 swine flu. 
So, how do we measure the contagiousness of a virus? As an infection spreads to new people, it reproduces itself. The reproduction number, or R0 value, is a measure of how contagious a disease is. H1N1 swine flu had an R0 value of 1.46, meaning each person who contracted the virus spread it to an average of 1.46 other people. Based on early data, COVID-19 has an R0 value between 2 to 2.5 which is even more unsettling when we know that not everyone with the virus shows symptoms. So, who is more at risk when it comes to these viruses? In both cases, as with any viral outbreak, those with underlying health issues are the most at risk. People with compromised immune systems like cancer patients have a hard time fighting off a new infection and are more prone to experiencing complications if they are exposed to the virus. Elderly people can also be at a high risk. In most pandemics, the death rate is heavily stacked against older people, and this does seem to be the case with COVID-19 so far. In a typical year, between 70 and 90% of all flu-related deaths are over the age of 65. One of the things that's made the H1N1 swine flu outbreak so unique was the fact that up to 80% of the people who died during the swine flu outbreak were under the age of 65. Researchers were able to determine that approximately one-third of all people over the age of 60 had immunity to swine flu thanks to the presence of antibodies in their system. This was likely because they had been exposed to a similar strain of H1N1 earlier in their lives. In fact, the infamous Spanish flu was caused by an H1N1 virus. Very few people under 60 had these antibodies, hence the much higher than normal death rate in the under 60 population. If these older people hadn't been immune, the H1N1 swine flu pandemic could have been much worse. COVID-19, on the other hand, is a novel virus, which means we've never seen any evidence of it in people before now. This also means that no one has immunity against it since their body hasn't produced antibodies against it. When we talk about COVID-19 versus H1N1 swine flu, what we're often really getting at is which is deadlier. A decade after the outbreak, we have some clear data about H1N1 swine flu. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, H1N1 swine flu infected 700 million to 1.4 billion people worldwide and killed between 151,000 and 575,000 people in the first year of the pandemic, up to 0.007% of the world's population. H1N1 had a case fatality rate of 0.02%. The case fatality rate is the proportion of people with a specific disease who will die from that disease over a specific time period. It's a measurement that can be used to track the severity of the disease and the effectiveness of treatments. With COVID-19, it's too early to say with any accuracy what the final case fatality rates will be. There are estimates based on current data, but those numbers will be skewed because we don't yet know the outcome of all the current cases, and it's hard to get an accurate case count in the first place. As of March 21st, 2020, WHO has reported 292,000 total cases so far. Of those cases, there have been 12,700 deaths to date, which works out to a case fatality rate of 0.04%. Though experts estimate that the final case fatality rate for COVID-19 could be anywhere between 0.25% to 3%. Just to put those numbers in context, the 1918 Spanish flu infected 500 million people, or a third of the world's population, and killed up to 50 million at a time when our understanding of viruses and social distancing were pretty limited, to say the least. Another huge difference between the H1N1 swine flu of 2009 and the current COVID-19 outbreak is that this is the first true pandemic of the social media age, when stories can spread faster than a virus. Sure, Facebook and Twitter were around back in 2009, but they weren't anywhere near as popular as they are now. But that doesn't mean people were immune to the kind of panic that we're currently experiencing. 
Robert Thompson, a professor of media and popular culture at Syracuse University in New York, was quoted at the time as saying, if as many people had swine flu as those who are covering swine flu, then it would be a pandemic to reckon with. Early news coverage was non-stop until the pandemic story was eventually knocked out of the headlines by a political scandal. So COVID-19 versus H1N1 swine flu, which is worse? Well, unfortunately, it's too soon to say for certain. Remember, the COVID-19 outbreak is still ongoing, and although this information is accurate as of March 2020, new information is coming in. With H1N1. Finally, we hear what the H and N mean. From Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. We identify influenza by two proteins on its surface called hemagglutinin and neuraminidase, and hence the terminology H and N. Influenza viruses generally affect a population in seasons. Sometimes, according to Dr. Fauci, they can modify slightly in what's called a drift. Researchers often adjust the influenza vaccine for that drift. But in the 20th century, there was a major shift in the influenza virus, and scientists and the public were unprepared for it. In 1980, You may have heard the newest influenza virus referred to as H1N1. Finally, we hear what the H and N mean. From Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. We identify influenza by two proteins on its surface called hemagglutinin and neuraminidase, and hence the terminology H and N. Influenza viruses generally affect a population in seasons. Sometimes, according to Dr. Fauci, they can modify slightly in what's called a drift. Researchers often adjust the influenza vaccine for that drift. But in the 20th century, there was a major shift in the influenza virus, and scientists and the public were unprepared for it. In 1918, the H1N1 virus, known then as the Spanish flu, killed 50 million people in a global pandemic. Two other pandemics occurred in 1957 and 1968. The Asian flu in 1957 killed at least 1 million, and the Hong Kong flu in 1968 killed 700,000. With the spread of avian flu in 2004, health experts had practice in preparing for a possible pandemic on the scale of the current H1N1 flu. They are not saying this virus is as deadly as the 1918 flu, but they warn that poor countries need help to prepare. Dr. Dennis Carroll, an influenza specialist with the U.S. Agency for International Development, says exercises have already begun in parts of Africa. Country representatives from seven East African countries were able to draw from their experiences developing national pandemic plans to test them in real-time context of a possible H1N1 pandemic. We have similar exercises already planned for South African countries in June and Asian countries in August. Scientists in the United States and elsewhere are now in developmental stages of a vaccine for this H1N1 virus. They say the virus could gather strength as the flu season begins in the Southern Hemisphere and as it sets in some months from now in the Northern Hemisphere. 
Health experts predict that the earliest day the vaccine would be available is in September. Melinda Smith, the... Okay. Okay, I have... <laughs> trying to maneuver this. I have a few of them lined up. I think this will work, a new system here. So, here we go. this a few times, so I'm feeling a little bit extra confused. Um, I'm going to just try to give you a few comments here, and then I'm just going to play through these clips, okay? Here's the deal. What I noticed once I noticed that, now I don't know if I mentioned this before or not, the, there's Gilly's bar, that disorder, that syndrome, that's shown up in the Zika babies in Brazil. It's showing up in, um, I first ran across it in this swine flu thing. So that's what brought me all the way back full circle here. And then I realized that, geez, this sounds exactly like the other one, <laughs> like Ebola. <laughs> and in this case, it's a young Mexican boy, and he gets in contact with a pig. I'll, I'll let the clip tell you the story. So I thought, boy, this sure sounds exactly like the Ebola story, right? Because I've been saying for years they're one-trick ponies. And, you know, the intelligence level of the crew in charge now really will not lead to any more than repeating patterns, right? So I thought, man, I don't care how hard I have to struggle to record this today. These clips, I really wanted to do it in their own words, okay? So I'm really struggling with, I have to turn off the recording part to turn on the other part, make sure I've gotten that, you know what I mean? So there's quite a few steps. <laughs> so... I think I have it now. I have one, two, three, four, five lined up because I've got even more. But it's fascinating to hear from their own words, okay? So anyway, so what happened was H, the first one, the swine flu came along and, um, well, it just didn't seem to work out. <laughs> it didn't catch on. <laughs> and this kind of like what happened with Ebola, Ebola right? They Ebola got going, and then they got all those vaccines done, and the vaccines are just sitting there, right? That's why I say Ebola's probably not off the charts yet, because they got all those Ebola vaccines sitting there. And same kind of deal happened with this swine flu. They got that all going, and, um, <laughs> well, they got that all going, and what happened was this. I need to read this article first. Um, so, there's this article I found and I'll just have to just read it straight through, okay? Um, it, it involves the people during, this happened, this swine flu thing in 1976, okay? And if I read you this article, then the clips I'm gonna play will really help illuminate it all. I mean, they actually went up to a microphone and said, we're gonna vaccinate everybody. <laughs> so, okay, so this is an article that somebody wrote kind of in retrospective of this swine flu thing, okay? And they wrote it when the pandemic for um, COVID was happening. And keep in mind, pandemic means they're pan-god, right? All this stuff is so coded, it's kind of crazy. Okay. <clears throat> With a pandemic looming, the U.S. president announced, that would be Trump, 
a warp speed effort to vaccinate every man, woman, and child in the country. As Richard Fisher discovers, the mistakes that follow hold lessons for today. Pascal Imperato was waiting in line for his vaccination shot. So were the cameras. It was around 10.30 in the morning on 12 October 1976, and Imperato was at the Chelsea Health Clinic, an old Art Deco building in the lower west side of Manhattan. The clinic was one of around 60 locations dotted around New York, preparing to vaccinate almost everybody in the city. That year, fears of a swine flu pandemic had loomed large, so President Gerald Ford had ordered an unprecedented mass vaccination of everyone in the United States. As Imperato rolled up his sleeve, it was the first day of the effort in New York. Imperato was Deputy Health Commissioner and the Chair of the Task Force charged with rolling out the program in the city, so he had volunteered to be photographed for the newspapers as he got his shot. The Mayor of New York City, when asked, had refused, so Imperato had stepped up. Turnout was strong across the city that morning. That year, fears of a swine flu pandemic had loomed large. Did I just read this? Um, anyway, I'm trying to go slow, so what I've got to do is, let me, let me do this. Next time I have to switch to the next page, I'll just switch before I keep talking, okay? Because I'm trying to, like, scroll up. I used to, like, scroll up. <laughs> Scrolling up is getting me lost. Okay, so... As things change, you take a breath and you change your patterns, right? Okay, so so this Imperato cat is at the health clinic in Chelsea, and um, President Gerald Ford had ordered an unprecedented mass vaccination of everybody in the United States. Um, so the okay, oh, here I got it. But what was meant to be a ceremonial opening and positive public relations effort would turn sour. That week, the papers had begun reporting troubling news from vaccine clinics in Pittsburgh, three apparently unexplained deaths due to heart attacks. I remember that day. I remember it vividly, recalls Imperato. I saw those headlines on the subway, and I said, Good God! All hell is breaking loose there. The headlines would get worse. Two days later, the New York Post tabloid wrote of the scene at the Pennsylvania Death Clinic, featuring emotional but almost certainly embellished tales. One of the old people, 75-year-old Julia Busey, had winced at the hypodermic needle in her arm had taken a few feeble steps, then dropped dead on the floor of the health station, right in front of their eyes. The stories, it turned out, were false and misleading, but it was just one of the many problems that plagued the swine flu affair of 1976 when a U.S. president declared to rush a vaccine to the entire American population 
based on ill-founded science and political imprudence. Lawsuits, side effects, and negative media coverage followed, and the event dented confidence in public health for years to come. And what's interesting here is this became the, fun the founding of the anti-vax people, which is just amazing because those poor people have been out there screaming about this stuff for years. I've never taken a vaccine. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm not trying to apologize for not understanding the death vehicle of vaccines. <laughs> it just wasn't on my radar, okay? And so, um, yeah, and it's just interesting, you know, I'm just getting a lot of help because today, you know, I'll just glide onto something and then pretty soon, that's why I keep saying, just listen, just listen, okay? So anyway, so... So the stories, it would turn out, were false and misleading, but it was just one of many problems that plagued the swine flu affair of 1976 when a U.S. president decided to rush a vaccine to the entire American population based on ill-founded science and political imprudence. Lawsuits, side effects, and negative media coverage followed, and the events dented confidence in public health for years to come. What happened might even have laid the foundations for the mistaken anti-vax views and distrust in public health that was spread decades later. And I want to interject here because I, I've been trying to record this show. <laughs> I rarely have to record more than one show, but this thing seems to keep needing to be re recorded. <laughs> anyway, so I remember some of the anti-vax people, okay, and I remember because remember I'm looking at this also from a marketing standpoint and patterns, right? Well, all I really remember of the people speaking out for the anti-vaxing were there was a celebrity named Jenny McCarthy, okay, she's a blonde bimbo type, right? And she would go on talk shows and stuff, and she wrote a book about her son having autism from vaccines. Well, of course I felt it was horrible for the child, but now that we know more about Jenny, Jenny McCarthy, she's a transgender, so sadly that isn't even her own child, right? That child went some, came from some real woman. So anyway, so don't get me started on that. So, so yeah, maybe her child got, or her adopted child, or somebody else's child that she's raising, however we want to look at these things, uh, maybe that child likely got autism, right? Because kids are cropping up with that all over the place. So. So what I'm saying here is that it was an interesting marketing thing on their part because my only real memory when I was trying to think about how did I kind of miss all this stuff, right? Well, you, you miss it until you look, right? <laughs> it, takes, it takes eyes to see what you're looking at is the whole slogan, right? So, yeah, so it was actually kind of brilliant. So th they put out this blonde bimbo just throwing out random things about not wanting to do vaccines, which made the whole thing seem untrustworthy, right? And people who were leaning in probably one direction or the other probably lean more toward thinking that um, she was just crazy, right? <laughs> and that it was okay to go ahead and vaccinate their kids would probably be the outcome. Because I remember her going on these talk shows and getting arguments with the hosts and stuff. And so, yeah. So that was who they sent out as their messenger for the anti-vax people. Whereas they probably had a million by this point after 76, until this stuff got rolling, 
I imagine up until they start rolling out this last vaccine, that anti-vax group is probably huge, but by now it's probably been so infiltrated and polluted. But anyway, so, and what, what this thing also brought about in 1976, always looking for the sources, right? I've talked about the legislation that came to make the manufacturers not have to have any responsibility for any vaccine injury. Well, that grew out of this 1976 thing. So I will continue on here because lawsuits, side effects, and negative media coverage followed. So what happened might even have laid the foundation for the mistaken anti-vax views and distrust in public health. As the world rushes to roll out a vaccine to billions of people today, what might we learn from the ill-fated events of 1976? And here's another fascinating part. Spanish flu, 1918, also started a military base. <laughs> Notice any patterns here? <laughs> okay. It began at a U.S. Army training base in New Jersey. In February 1976, several soldiers at Fort Dix, D-I-X, fell ill with a previously unrecognized swine flu. None had been in contact with pigs, so human transmission was assumed. Testing revealed that the virus had spread to more than 200 recruits. The pandemics of 1957 and 1968 were still fresh in the memory, and fears soon escalated of another 1918-like influenza pandemic, which had killed tens of millions. Further investigation found that people under 50 years old had no antibodies to this new strain. Urgent decisions were needed. Public health officials realized it might be possible to get a vaccine to the public by the end of the year if they acted fast. The pharmaceutical industry had just finished manufacturing vaccines for the normal flu seasons. And this is where I was getting confused for a while until I found this article because they had everybody getting the normal flu season shots in 1976 and then they had this pan panic and pandemic of this um, pig flu swine flu <laughs> so then what they had to do was that then they had to go out and alert the public that hey you got your flu shot now you need to get more and i, I was kind of like going around to, anyway but anyway you'll see when i show the clips how all this is <laughs> mimics what's going on and just this stuff well you gotta take one shot now oh hey how about if you take two okay so mm -hmm. so the pharmaceutical industry had just finished manufacturing vaccines for the normal flu seasons good they good they were ready to get rolling right they also had an animal advantage they had roosters Back then, influenza vaccine was produced in fertilized hen's eggs. I have to check into this because I, th I think they're, they're doing it in maybe unfertilized hen's eggs because as I believe they're still, they still have their chicken, the U.S. government has these secret chicken park farms <laughs> for vaccines. I'll have to get back to that. Okay. So anyway, so luckily that flu vaccine, they, they just wrapped up the flu season, okay? And they, ha they still had the chickens. I guess, I guess they hadn't gotten rid of the roosters yet. So back then, influenza vaccine was produced in fertilized hen's eggs. That season's roosters were due for slaughter. So a slow decision would add a delay of several months to vaccine manufacture. Boy, that's good. 
in March, President Ford announced a $137 million effort in March of 1976 to produce a vaccine by the autumn. Its goal was to immunize every man, woman, and child in the U.S. and thus was the largest and most ambitious immunization program ever undertaken in the U.S., wrote Imperato in a 2015 paper reflecting on the event. With hindsight, it's easy to see the fears of the time were unfounded, according to them, I guess. The swine flu strain spotted at Fort Dix was not dangerous and there would be no pandemic. Later, researchers discovered that benign swine flu strains had been circulating in the U.S. population long before this one was identified at the military base. And scientists who feared another Spanish flu did not know that the 1918 influenza was avian, that's birds, not swine. Researchers at the time also suffered from a form of recency bias based on experience from the 1950s and 1960s. They assumed major influenza pandemics happened on an 11-year cycle when they're actually more irregular. Now remember, they're the ones who created the first assumption of when these things happened, right? I know I wasn't involved in that decision. <laughs> Were you? <laughs> so at first they thought, oh, this stuff only happens every 11 years. Okay, so. So as has happened throughout the COVID-19 pa pandemic of 2020, these scientists could only give the best advice they could based on incomplete knowledge. Many public health officials were skeptical and uncertain too, including Umberto, we're back at Umberto in New York. I think all of us were in agreement that yes, it's probably unlikely, but we can't be absolutely sure, sure he recalls. President Ford did convene a high profile meeting of scientists to decide if there should be a vaccination program. But this was interpreted to be a political event rather than a scientific process, according to David Sensor. He was the then director of the CDC. So this guy, David Sensor, S-E-N-C-E-R, he thought this meeting that was conducted by President Ford was a political event, okay? Isn't it odd that he was even think, thinking of that in the first place? That was my first strike when I, when I read this on a recording that got deleted earlier. So. <laughs> yeah, it strikes me as very odd that they'd even be thinking that, right? So that's not to say that scientists were neutral in their uncertainties. A former president of the Institute of Medicine, Harvey Feinberg, conducted in a lacerating review of the events in 2008. Plenty of senior scientists supported the vaccine with pre-existing agendas. Some researchers saw the chance to improve the credentials of their institution or field on the national stage, he wrote, while others held a conviction that prevention of disease by vaccination was an achievable perfection of the human condition. 
And the whole thing, and this is just my take on this thing, these scientists, essentially what they're doing is they're going around raiding bat caves and stuff and um, to study bats because they're thinking in the future if we get these diseases from bats, they'll have the cure, right? Well, so in the meantime, you know, it's kind of like the thing with the mosquitoes. In the meantime, they're just dumping all kinds of stuff all over the place, right? Um, and the sad part is, is all these animals... <laughs> I don't know if I've said it in this show. I don't think I have because I've, I've had a few um, attempts at recording this. Anyway, so um, I've watched a bunch of these scientist things, okay? So I'm, I'm saying this based on not being a scientist, but based on somebody, you know, people really underrate being handicapped, okay? <laughs> it gives me a lot of time to stay busy looking around. So being this terribly handicapped, I'm even more motivated to look around because it's a good um, diversion of time and of interest and all that kind of stuff. So, um, what are you say? So yeah, so I've looked at a million of these, um, or it feels like a million in the last few weeks of these um, scientists out running around grabbing up bats and pigs and stuff like this. And I gotta tell you, Something's got to be wrong in the, in the ticker, okay, to want to have this kind of job in the first place. So they really feel like hunting down these innocent animals are to some advantage so that they can study these things to avert us from ever getting sick. Well, how about if we just understand the theory that we weren't sick to start with, right? <laughs> so, so the only thing I can do is continue to read this article, and then I'll, I'll, I'll soon, it's almost over, yeah. Just a few more pages, and then I'll be able to start playing the clips because there's too much well I'm glad that I was able to find clips to, to tell this story and also glad because it will tell it better than me trying to stop and start going through it and it will also tell it and we want to document it from their own voices not just me reading what they're saying right for weeks this hampered the plans of local public officials like Imperato but crucially also dented public confidence. What was I talking about here? Um, oh, <clears throat> I don't remember if I read this part, so let me go ahead and just read it. Um, well, I'm, gl I'm glad, see, isn't it lucky that I, g I kept going <laughs> when it was cold and I didn't run the heater? Well, also remember too, they only installed all these extra transformers in the last uh, month or two? Yeah. Oh, so anyway, so, okay. Okay. So they wrote this review saying the scientists were all in on the take. Some of them thought they wanted to cure humanity, and that's when I went off on a tangent. Okay. So then this is how it gets good. As the summer arrived, no outbreak had emerged nationally or internationally, but efforts continued nonetheless. Four pharmaceutical companies had begun production and testing was underway in clinical trials. But in June, there was a problem that would have far-reaching effects for years afterwards, June of 1976. It began when the industry manufacturers announced that they had been refused liability insurance, effectively downing tools. They asked Congress to identify them but were turned down. For weeks
has hampered the plans of local public health officials like Imperato, but crucially also dented public confidence. While the manufacturer's ultimatum reflected the trend of increased, increased litigiousness in American society, its unintended, unmistakable, subliminal message blared, there's nothing wrong, there's something wrong with this vaccine, right censor. This public misperception, warranted or not, ensured that every coincidental health event that occurred in the wake of the swine flu shot would be scrutinized and attributed to the vaccine. In July, the Ford, President Ford administration agreed to bear the cost of defending lawsuits and asked Congress to pass legislation. The program was back on track but it was too late to reverse the damage to public perception. The October crisis. By mid-October 1976, as Imperato was queuing with the photographers for his shot in New York City, the whole enterprise was already well on the way to another crisis, even if leaders did not acknowledge it. The president himself was vaccinated on television on 14 October, further heightening perceptions that this was a political event, writes censor. The dealing, the, <coughs> the deaths in Pittsburgh would be the start. While there was no casual evidence linking these deaths to the vaccine, they triggered many people to come forward claiming evidence of ill health, falsely blaming the inoculation. Nine states shut down their programs. With such a high-profile rollout closely attached to the White House, many journalists unused to covering science reported only what they saw and heard from the public without interrogating whether it was linked. Tabloid journalists gave few column inches to epidemiology's nuance. What they should have looked for was excess mortality deaths that would not have happened otherwise. But the daily emerging tales of unexplained heart attacks, distraught nurses, and political failure won more attention. The event the events became known in Imperato's team as the October Crisis. Take-up of the vaccine in the following days plummeted as public confidence waned. Some of those headlines were really terrible. I, re I remember one of them was death toll mounting, he recalls. What they were really doing was monitoring the normal pattern of deaths in a population of older, older people that would have occurred anyway. Blaming the vaccine, he says, was akin to concluding that a man killed by a falling tree limb died because of his red socks. Well, this is interesting because he's saying that they, um, they talked about the death toll being just older people, which would have been normal, right? 
Well, in this case, what they did was they told all the people to add the old people to the COVID thing to make the death toll higher. They, they, they were specifically told not to leave them out for higher numbers because I'm just guessing that higher numbers, this death count in total is what the goal is, right? More fear. So, okay, um, I'm continuing on here. I'm almost done. Um, Imperato grew frustrated with the CDC during this period, who he believes should have stepped in faster to reassure people and present the evidence. The CDC remained silent. We were not happy about that, he recalls. We were very angry with them. Echoing the speculation around the CDC today, he wonders whether they were muted by, for political reasons, but does not know. Censor, the CDC director at the time, could probably say, but he died in 2011. In 26, Censor did write, however, that the CDC believed that local and public health departments were best placed to communicate with the media and the public. A problem of nerves. As the months continued, still with no outbreak, new problems arose. And this time, there were real side effects. Millions of vaccinations meant dozens of cases of Julian Barr syndrome, a rare problem where the body's immune system attacks the nerves. It leads to weakening, weakness and tingling in the extremities, and in some cases can be severe, leading to other complications and paralysis. This syndrome was less understandable in the 1970s. Research has since found that the chances of developing the condition after vaccination are extremely small. But the scale of the 1976 rollout meant that a handful of people were bound to be affected. As Censor once pointed out in an interview with the World Health Organization, who are you going to call? If a pandemic had happened in 1976, then these rare cases would have been a blip on the screen amid a much deeper, wider problem. See, this whole thing just got started, but just never seemed to take off, right? Same thing with Ebola got stopped again. It's no sense that vaccines, no, it's no secret that vaccines can have side effects, but their protective effects against deadly diseases significantly outweigh these risks for the vast majority of people. As Helen Branswell of Stat News pointed out recently, mild side effects should be anticipated as new vaccines emerge for COVID-19 and it's no cause for alarm. Also, you are more likely to get Jillian Barr syndrome from an infection such as the flu than the flu vaccine. The rate of extra cases associated with the 2009 swine flu vaccine was two in a million. So your worst bet is to get the um, disease, I don't know. 
still a Julian Barr problem in 1976 did sadly cause illness and suffering among an unlikely, unlucky group of people, perhaps as many as hundreds, who we can now conclude did not need to go through what they did. The swine flu affair, the New York Times concluded, has become a sorry debacle and fiasco marked by political expediency and unwarranted confidence. After months of negative media coverage, the Julian Barr reports brought an overdue end to the swine flu affair. Ford's program was suspended in December 1976 with only about 20% of the U.S. population vaccinated. And since the U.S. government had offered liability coverage to the pharmaceutical manufacturers that summer, hundreds of compensation clams, claims from Julian Barr claimants followed for years afterwards. Oh, as a matter of fact, over my website, I'm on the tab about what about the children, you'll find just some alarming settlements. I mean, just some places. I mean, they will like, the U.S. government will wipe out an entire population of people and the settlement will be like $2 million or something crazy like that. Settlements are what they fight. <coughs> and, that, and they do it with their, all their attorneys. Keeping everything secret, right? Okay. So... Only 20% were vaccinated. So they had to pay hundreds of... Um, okay, no, I was going to scroll it for a second. What I have to do is scroll before I just start yapping away again so I don't get... This is called adapting to my present circumstances, right? <laughs> okay. While it would be a stretch to suggest that it led directly to the anti-vax movement decades later, the botched decisions of 1976 would remain in the United American memory and would have done little to boost confidence in vaccines and public health advice for years afterwards. So as our politicians stand at their podiums making claims and promises about vaccines during COVID-19 pandemic, what else might we be learned from the swine flu affair of 1976? For Feinberg, the fundamental strategic blunder was announcing a mass vaccination program so early. It was premature and locked politicians into a very visible commitment. So when presidents and prime ministers make bold promises to the public, like Operation Warp Speed, the current U.S. effort to roll out 300 million doses to the U.S. public by January 2021, it makes a scientific process into a political pledge. As 1976 showed, such a commitment can make leaders less willing to adapt to new evidence or changes in risk. Censor writes that Ford and other leaders were continually briefed that a pandemic remained possible, but not how probable, even as the likelihood declined with time. There was also arguably a language gap. 
to a scientist, possible can mean a one in a million chance. To a politician, it necessitates action. In the post-mortem of 1976, it is also striking to read of the pitfalls of politicians presenting scientific information to the public. When Ford was in the face, excuse me, when Ford was the face for the vaccine initiative, censor writes, it did not foster trust. Scientific information coming from a non-scientific political figure is likely to encourage skepticism, not enthusiasm, he writes. How quickly these efforts of judgment have been forgotten during the COVID-19 pandemic, as politicians shoulder out experts when the cameras point their way. When politicians talk of the science as a complete body of knowledge, a manual for what to do, it neglects the uncertainty of evidence and ignores that science is a human endeavor. Scientists, however, are human too. Well, that's kind of questionable, wouldn't you say? (laughs) (coughs) (laughs) I mean, come on, I I have to. (laughs) If you watch enough of these videos of actual scientists chasing down innocent bats in caves, you kind of of start to question if they're human too, okay? Just saying. Scientists, however, are human too. Today, it's easy to see gaps in the scientific evidence of 1976, such as the belief that the virus mirrored the 1918 outbreak or that a pandemic was due. But the scientists of the time could not. So faced with uncertainty, they made conclusions influenced by belief, instinct, or fear. The same must almost certainly be true today. The science of viruses in 2020 may be far more sophisticated, but the science of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes the disease COVID-19, remains incomplete. According to Feinberg, the swine flu affair was characterized by overconfidence in theory spun from meager evidence. There was also a kind of hero effect at play, says Feinberg, where the fear of disaster led to an immovable zeal. So when politicians in the present day talk of the science as the as if it is a complete body of knowledge, a manual for what to do, it neglects the uncertainty of evidence and ignores that science is a human endeavor. <coughs> as for Imperato, remembering the day he was vaccinated for the cameras and the surrounding chaos gives him some concerns about what's ahead in 2020. I really see the beginnings of the same patterns of commentary about the COVID-19 vaccines and the trials, he says. There's no reason he believes why a mass vaccination effort could not be rolled out quickly, but he worries about the media context it will happen within. There are so many talking heads on television and on social media commenting on every 
aspect of this pandemic, he says. Their credentials are not matched to what they're commenting on. I refer to them as trespassers. The swine flu affair of 1976 holds many lessons for today, says Imperato, and there's wisdom in the aphorism for those who ignore the lessons of today are doomed to repeat it. So throughout his career, I'll try to be serious here. So throughout his career, he has remained a strong advocate for the life-saving properties of vaccines. You know, all that happened while I was getting my shot, it didn't dissuade me. I still went ahead with it, he said. <laughs> well, that a boy, that a boy, right? He still went ahead with it, so of course. Okay, so let's get to the next clip. What I'm going to be doing now is um, we're starting with the boy in Mexico, okay? <laughs> and then I, ha I have them lined up. This will not run off the rails, but I have them all lined up here, so let's get going here. It's called, the title is Swine Flu Outbreak, The Facts, <laughs> and it's from 14 years ago, ABC News. This is how the whole plot line got started. Zero from the swine flu outbreak. My glory. A little Mexican farming village that time forgot and that the world would never know but for a five-year-old boy who was very, very sick with swine flu a month ago. Today, we found a very healthy Edgar Hernandez with his little brother and father in the village's dusty main street. Were you sick? Yes, he says. You were sick? Very, very sick? Very sick, I asked. Yes, he said, with a cough. How do you feel now, I asked. Good, eh? Edgar's father told us it was late March when his son spent three days in bed. Was he very sick? He had a high fever, he says. He was sweating. And when did you learn that uh, your son had Just on Sunday, he said. I was watching on TV and they were saying they were looking for the first person who had swine flu, and the doctor came and told us it was our son. And it was a surprise, Yes, it was a surprise. What was it? It was that his son got the flu. In March, more than 800 people in the town of Key House got sick. No one died, and it was only after swine flu started to spread that Mexican government investigators said to look at the outbreak in La Gloria. There was only one April sample available for testing, which belonged to Edward. At the modest local medical clinic, the village's one doctor, who arrived only weeks ago, says flu is common here. Are you afraid of swine flu? No, she says, but she adds she does wear a face mask when dealing with patients. <coughs> she started laughing when they asked him that question. When people here heard that a case of swine flu had been traced to this area, few were surprised. And in the next breath, they'll tell you they think they know where it came from. Just a few miles from the village are about a dozen huge industrial pig farms. For years, villagers have complained about the putrid smell. While they have no proof, they say they worry that these containment ponds are contaminating their drinking water. That is Jose Benitez Valencia, a shepherd who raises his goats near one of the pig farms. A and what's it like living around this area with all these pig farms? Life is bad, he says, because the smell is very bad. We can't live with it. The waste in those ponds just sits there. You, you don't like it, huh? Like, 
just go that way to smell it. It stinks. You realize it's very bad. And are there a lot of jobs for people in the area from these big farms? Yes, there's a lot of work, but a lot of people have their health damaged. That's why people quit. People get sore throats and things like that. Would you like to work in one? To tell you the truth, I wouldn't want to work there. We also met a security guard who works for the company that owns these farms. No, you're not getting in, said the security guard. The guard did tell us that these huge farms bring very few jobs to the area. In the United States, what some call factory farms are part of a multi-billion dollar industry others call the agribusiness. A year ago, the Pew Charitable Trust conducted a study that looked at health concerns related to the giant pig farms in the U.S. Our number one public health recommendation was to end the practice that it was common in industrial farming production of giving antibiotics to healthy animals to compensate for the overcrowded and filthy conditions they live in. Our second primary uh, public health recommendation dealt with uh, our concerns about concentrated animal feeding operations at state levels really being super incubators uh, for uh, developing a pandemic flu virus. According to the study, the pig is the perfect petri dish for generating new viruses. Swine can, um, they're an amazingly adaptable animal. They can be susceptible to avian influenza, obviously swine influenza, and human influenza. And uh, they really become beneficial uh, in this super incubator that is the industrial operation. And some farmers in the U.S. defiantly refuse offers to turn their operations into factory farms. Salatine in a polyface farm outside of Charlottesville, Virginia, is one of them. An animal that can fully express its, its physiological distinctiveness will be its most fulfilled. And uh, by fulfillment, I mean it'll be its most nutritious, its happiest, its, um, its uh, least amount of, uh, of sick sickness or disease. Um, and so we want to provide a habitat that fully honors and respects the pigness of the pig. Back in La Gloria, most people have no sense of what the swine flu epidemic is doing as it circles the world. They don't know, and the experts don't know, if it really did begin here, and if it did, how it spread. American medical experts tell us it can be passed from person to person with the most casual contact, and not every carrier gets sick. But you cannot get it from eating pork. The pig farms, are, are they good or, or are they not good for your community? They are bad, say all these men who live in the village. They told us they just hope that someone will finally help them in their fight to get the pig farms cleaned up. <coughs> just down the street at the Hernandez home, Hector's father hears his son coughing and worried. Some of your neighbors think that, you, that this came from the pig farm nearby. Yes, he says, they're just eight kilometers away. We would like them all to leave because they're going to infect us all. It's not clear how this boy got his swine flu, but it is clear that so far, it's the first known case in an epidemic that has spread fear across the globe. For Nightline, I'm Jeffrey Kaufman in my glory, Mexico. So that's how the whole thing got started. <coughs> now, um,
Today, the federal government outlined its coronavirus vaccination plan, an effort expected to last through 2021. And for anyone who thinks that sounds slow, KPIX5's Wilson Walker shows us trying to move too fast has caused problems before. The world needs a vaccine right now, and all of us would like to see that happen as quickly as possible. But it was not that long ago that the United States was looking for another vaccine. And from that case, a lesson in being patient and getting it right. I'm at an age group that were, I'm at risk. So I am a, a vaccine taker. Now retired on the North Coast, Dr. James Tillotson was an infectious disease specialist in 1976 when H1N1, or the swine flu, broke out at Fort Dix, New Jersey. More than 200 soldiers were infected, one died, and fearing a nationwide pandemic, President Gerald Ford decided on a full-scale response. We offer every American the opportunity to be inoculated. As with anything, we, you need some caution, and uh, that caution was sort of thrown to the wind. The vaccine was created and injected into 25% of Americans in just 10 months. But by the fall, reports of side effects were coming in from across the country just as it became clear that the virus had never escaped Fort Dix. So despite the massive effort, get a shot of protection, the swine flu shot. Americans were left with vaccine that had some side effects that uh, uh, were serious and a vaccine that was, at that point in time, completely unnecessary. The program was shut down by early 77, but some point to the whole episode as one of the seeds for the modern anti-vax movement. You could point to it, yeah, sure. But, uh, you know, people that are anti-vaccine will point to anything, unfortunately. <laughs> Tillotson says 76 is more or less in, in good patient science, the kind of thing we need now. I gotta, wait a second, wait a second, I gotta listen to that last again a lesson in good patient science, the kind of thing we need now. We need a vaccine. There's no question about it. We need a vaccine that's safe and effective. In Mendocino County, Wilson Walker, KPIX. Oh, wait a minute. I didn't go back. You know, people that are anti-vaccine will point to anything, unfortunately. <laughs> Tillotson says 76 is more or less in good patient science, the kind of thing we need now. That's, how, that's what they think about us. Okay, so... <laughs> Moving right along here. Um, Okay, so 
<clears throat> this one is H1N1, preparing for the worst. Flu pandemic swept the Wait a second. The flu was enough to divert a DC-bound jumbo jet today. A passenger from Germany complained she felt ill, and the pilot landed right away in Boston. Runny nose, a sore throat. We transported her to the Mass General Hospital. Early estimates indicate the H1N1 strain is slightly more contagious than the typical seasonal flu, infecting roughly one out of every four people who live with a flu patient. Genetic testing, however, shows it is a less lethal strain than feared. We do not see the markers for virulence that we're seeing in the 1918 virus. That flu pandemic swept the world, killing an estimated 50 million people. Upon news of this outbreak, prescriptions for antivirals jumped 800%, and the government is spending $250 million to buy 13 million more courses of Tamiflu and Relenza. President Obama explained the move in a special cabinet meeting. Even if it turns out that uh, the H1N1 uh, is relatively mild on the front end, it could come back in a more virulent form during the actual flu season. If that happens, some public health experts are expressing concern about whether hospitals could handle the onslaught. We really have not made much progress in our hospitals in the United States being able to surge up to increase capacity in a hurry. So this allows us to watch this thing move. The man spearheading flu preps at Health and Human Services says hospitals will never have enough beds to handle a pandemic. It's just not cost effective to build those facilities and have them sit empty. He is confident, though, that there are enough medical supplies and doctors, and they can be shifted around the country as needed. Because most countries are now advising against travel to Mexico, airlines are starting to slash service, some by as much as 50%. Katie? Right, supporters, thanks a lot. They slashed <coughs> um, going to Mexico because of that um, kid in Mexico. They said it came from Mexico, so they stopped flights going to Mexico <coughs> based on what one kid in a village in Mexico. Okay, I have several <laughs> lined up here. <coughs> this first one is um, Fauci says new swine flu strain will be monitored but is not an immediate threat. Chinese uh, over the last week or two have identified a virus in the environment. It has not yet shown to be infecting humans, but it is exhibiting what we call reassortment 
capabilities. In other words, when you get a brand new virus that turns out to be a pandemic virus, it's either due to mutations and or the reassortment or exchanges of genes. And they're seeing virus in swine, in pigs now, that have characteristics of the 2009 H1N1, of the original 1918, which many of our flu viruses have remnants of that in it, as well as segments from other hosts like swine. When they all mix up together, and they contain some of the elements that might make them susceptible to being transmitted to humans, you always have the possibility that you might have another swine flu type outbreak as we had in 2009. It's something that still is in the stage of examination. It's not so-called an immediate threat where you're seeing infections, but it's something we need to keep our eye on just the way we did in 2009 with the emergence of the swine flu. It's called G4 is the name of it. Hey, NBC. This is Fauci. Dr. Anthony Fauci. New virus in China has traits of 2009 swine flu and 1918 pandemic flu. We could have identified a virus in the environment. It has not yet shown to be infected humans, but it is exhibiting what we call reassortment capabilities. In other words, when you get a brand new virus that turns out to be a pandemic virus, it's either due to mutations and or the reassortment or exchanges of genes. I swear I just played that. I'm going to go ahead and... I need to start closing the files. <laughs> I'm done with it. <laughs> I'm trying to kind of set up a new system on the fly here that my brain can calculate. Okay, so this one is <clears throat> a really good one. Is 2009 H1N1 influenza update. This is Fauci at his finest. September 15th, 2009. Update. Or that contracted the 2009 H1N1 influenza virus. Well, for a person, him or herself, to be able to determine that would essentially be impossible because you can get everything from very, very mild illness to severe illness with either seasonal flu or the H1N1 new 2009 pandemic flu. Most of the time it's a mild disease, uh, but there are unusual cases that can be severe. The only way a person can tell is if they get their blood drawn or other laboratory tests which could specifically distinguish between one and the other, but that is something that is not done routinely. So if someone wakes up in the morning and feels that they're not uh, well, they get a fever, muscle aches, and cough, the things that you would get with the flu, it would be very difficult for them to determine whether it's seasonal flu or the H1N1. However, circumstances that are going on in the community 
can give you a pretty big hint of what you have. Let me give you an example. When H1N1 historically has gone into a community, both in the United States in the spring of 2009, as well as what we're seeing in the Southern Hemisphere, in Argentina, Chile, Australia, in South Africa, it generally overwhelms and crowds out the seasonal flu. So if you're in a community in which we know from surveillance that 99% of the cases of flu are really H1N1, you can make a reasonable assumption that your illness is due to H1N1. If there's a mixture of both, or if there's still a lot of seasonal flu in the community, you may not be able to distinguish between one and the other. This year, do I get a shot for the 2009 H1N1 flu in addition to the regular flu shot? Well, you certainly should get your seasonal flu shot, that's for sure. When we talk about the vaccination program for the H1N1, we'd like to be sure trying to get past the cords. Yeah. One second. Oh, it's okay, sweetie. Go lay down, baby. Hey, this is brutal in here. I have to maneuver this slowly. One blip on one cord and it all goes. keep going here. <clears throat> Brace your ears. I don't know. It's okay, sweetie. Give me a minute. caretakers, parents, or what have you, of children less than six months old, healthcare workers, young children and young adults from six months to 24 years old, and individuals from 25 to 64 who have underlying medical conditions that would compromise them and put them at a higher risk for complications. What should a person do if they get flu-like symptoms? One of the major concerns is that hospitals will be inundated with the worried well. But at what point should you be concerned enough to seek medical attention? Well, if you have the H1N1 flu, or think you have the H1N1 flu, or even seasonal flu, let's say if you think you have influenza, most of the time this is a relatively mild illness. It makes you uncomfortable. So what we recommend for people, and this has to do fundamentally with whether or not you should receive treatment with an antiviral drug. So if you have a low-grade fever, some aches, some sniffles, a bit of a cough, and it doesn't go any further than that, you may want to call up your healthcare provider, explain your symptoms, 
and I'm sure he or she will tell you that if you start to have difficulty breathing, really uncomfortable, high fevers, really bad myalgias, you should then come in and get a prescription to get treated. Because you want to treat people who have serious disease that either requires hospitalization or may be serious enough to even consider hospitalization. So a phone call or a visit, depending upon how severe it is. Importantly, if you happen to fall into one of the four categories that are at high risk for complications, and that's pregnant women, that is young children, that is the elderly individuals older than 65 years old, or individuals who have underlying conditions that compromise them. If you fall under one of those four individuals, you shouldn't wait. You should get your physician to get you a prescription to be treated right away. If you're otherwise healthy, you use your judgment. Is it mild enough? Maybe a phone call. You don't necessarily have to go into an emergency room. In fact, we discourage that unless you are feeling really poorly. Are there some basic things that people can do to reduce the likelihood of transmission? Well, there are things that people can do to reduce the likelihood of their getting infected and to reduce the likelihood of their infecting others. And let's talk about reducing the likelihood of your getting infected. First thing, importantly, wash your hands frequently because we know that you can get infected by touching an inanimate object that someone who was infected touched and then touch your nose or your lips or your eyes. Try and stay away as much as possible from rubbing your eyes or your nose or your mouth because that's a very good way to, to transmit the virus. The other thing is to avoid, particularly when there's flu in the community, avoid places where there are people who are sick and coughing and it's a crowded place. Now that's difficult to do. You can't isolate yourself from the rest of the world for the whole flu season, but use some good judgment in that. How you can prevent giving it to others is if you're sick, don't go to school, or parents should not send their children to school if they're sick. If you're sick, don't go to work. If you're coughing or sneezing, cover it with a tissue or sneeze or cough into your elbow. Do those kinds of things, as well as washing your own hands, because you may give it to somebody else from what's on your own hands. NIAID sponsored clinical trials of the 2009 H1N1 influenza vaccine, which began in early August, already have some preliminary results. What are the early data showing us? Well, the early data are, are showing us, we, we did a, a bunch of trials and the fundamental questions are, is this safe, at least in the short term, are there any obvious uh, safety issues? Secondly, what is the right dosage to use and how many doses should we give? And what is the sequence of giving it vis-a-vis -vis the seasonal flu vaccine and the H1N1 vaccine? We have some very good news that we got recently that first of all, as we had expected, since this is very much like the seasonal flu vaccine, that there doesn't appear to be any safety red flags or safety issues. The other important issue is that we were able to induce a very powerful response in people, in adults and the elderly, with a single dose <coughs> of what the classical dosage is, which is 15 micrograms, very typical of what you give with seasonal flu vaccine. That dose not only was effective with a single dose as opposed to two doses, but it also induced a very potent response within eight to 10 days of getting vaccinated, which means when you go get your flu shot, the H1N1, you will induce a response that you could predict would be protective 
really relatively quickly, within two weeks, eight to ten days, is what we found. There are some people who are still concerned about a vaccine and possible side effects. But in talking about 2009 H1N1 flu vaccines, you've time and again made a very good point. That is, while there is a risk, a slight risk, associated with the 2009 H1N1 vaccine, there is also a risk if you do nothing and are not vaccinated. Can you elaborate on this? Whenever you make a decision about any intervention that you're going to allow yourself to undergo, be it a drug or a vaccine, you've got to balance the risk of what you're going to do with the benefit that you're going to get from it. So if you look at the theoretical but very, very, very small risk of there being anything that's going to be deleterious with a vaccine, and yet the fact that we are in the middle of a pandemic and we're seeing a lot of people getting infected, and we're seeing that some of them are getting seriously ill, particularly people in these high-risk categories like pregnant women and children and people with underlying conditions, so that the risk of not being protected against influenza balanced against the risk of the vaccine and then the benefit of getting vaccinated versus the benefit of being protected from the uh, influenza that you can get infected. It, it is no doubt that the balance of risk-benefit strongly favors the benefit of vaccine because of the risk of influenza versus the relatively small risk of the vaccine. And that was from um, National Institute of Health, Fauci's, <coughs> Fauci's own YouTube page. Welcome to Democracy Fauci's now. YouTube page. So you can find that there. To it's called um, either National Institutes of Health Channel. And from 13 years ago. This one is new H1N1 guidelines for kids. Officials about how many doses children will need of the H1N1 vaccine. Our Dr. Jennifer Ashton is here with details. Every day there's another headline. Every day there's another sort of unveiling of information. What is the, and this is very important news for parents, what's the news today? Now, this pertains to children, Harry. The National Institutes of Health have released the results of studies on kids and the H1N1 vaccine. The good news, it's safe and effective. The not so good news, parents will be spending a little more time at the pediatrician's office. Five-year-old Tate and his older brother Harrison are receiving their seasonal flu vaccines, and according to new NIH guidelines, they'll need to come back to the doctor's office two more times if they want to be protected from the H1N1 virus. Studies show that children under age 10 will require two doses of the H1N1 vaccine. In children 10 and over, one dose is effective. I don't think they're going to be very excited about coming back. Pediatricians are making preparations. So we're trying to leave appointment slots available that are convenient for parents after school. We're trying to lengthen our office hours a little bit. On Monday, the government announced it would order 56 million more doses, bringing the total number of vaccines to 251 million. Of the more than 600 deaths from H1N1 in the U.S., 47 of those have been children. For those kids under 10 who require two doses, they'll need to wait about 21 days in between injections. Kids and adults can receive the seasonal flu shot and the H1N1 injection at the same time. But since the seasonal flu vaccine is already available, 
Doctors recommend getting it now, Harry. And we'll have more on the seasonal flu in a little while. Dr. Jennifer Ashton, thanks so much. Joining us now from Bethesda, Maryland, is Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. How confident should we feel about these latest guidelines, about under 10, two vaccinations, over 10, one vaccination? Well, first, they're not official guidelines yet. We were talking about the data that's going to inform the guidelines, which will almost certainly be just like the seasonal flu. They'll come from the CDC and, and the FDA. And I think we feel pretty confident about it. We tested the vaccine in children of various ages from six months up to 17 years. And what we saw with regard to the response, first, the safety looked good. But the response that they gave, which means a measurement of how you would predict would they be protected with this vaccine? And that looked good, similar to the seasonal flu vaccine, which we give every year to children. Namely, if you're 10 to 17 years old, you really need one dose. It does it very, very well. Mm -hmm. Between six months and nine, it is likely that you will need two doses, which is good news all around, I think, because that's exactly what we see each year with the seasonal flu vaccine. And that's what the guidelines will ultimately be based on not official yet, but that's really what they're going to be. As we sit here sort of parsing this out day by day by day and sort of trying to pull apart the strands of this flu virus and expected coming pandemic, has the government's response to this been, especially in terms of producing the, the, the vaccine, has it been prompt enough? Well, I think so. This virus was just recognized for the first time in April in Mexico and in the and in California and Texas. <coughs> Excuse me, I didn't want to cough during that part. Did you let me let me let me replay that part. This is how <laughs> that kid in Mexico <laughs> how he says this with such confidence. <laughs> Sorry, I had to cough. I didn't want to cough over the part where he's saying that this is where the scene of the crime began. Okay, here we go. ends of this flu virus and expected coming pandemic. Has the government's response to this been, especially in terms of producing the, the, the vaccine, has it been prompt enough? Well, I think so. This, this virus was just recognized for the first time in April in Mexico and in, the, and in California and Texas. And to get to the point where we now have vaccine that's ready to be queued up to be given out in early to mid-October, <laughs> We have orders that will keep them coming in in the flow right through the fall and the winter. And we're learning the kinds of things that you just announced now on the program of how to use it, the kinds of doses. Just about a week and a half ago, we did not know if this would even be able to induce a response that would be protective. We know now that in adults and the elderly we can, and we just found out yesterday that in children that's also the case, that the kinds of things that we would expect from a seasonal flu vaccine, mm -hmm. we're seeing exactly the same with the H1N1 vaccine. So stay informed, stay in tune, watch the CDC website. Dr. Anthony Fauci, thank you very, very much for your expertise this morning. Okay. This one is teens rare H1N1 vaccine side effects. And this is from 13 years ago. In this morning's Flu Watch, vaccine side effects. Government health officials say they have worked very hard to make sure the H1N1 vaccine is safe for everyone. However, 
One rare, and we should emphasize rare, side effect of flu vaccines is starting to show up around the country. Our Dr. Jennifer Ashman is here to tell us all about it. Good morning. Good morning, Harry. It is rare. This is a pretty rare illness known as Guillain-Barre syndrome, and one teenager in Virginia recently came down with it. His parents believe it may be related to the H1N1 vaccine. This is 14-year-old Jordan McFarland. Weeks ago, he was an athletic young man playing sports. Now he needs a walker to move from room to room. It's an aching, but it's, it's, it's also a pain that I can't describe. Doctors told Jordan's parents he has Guillain-Barre syndrome, or GBS, a rare illness in which the immune system attacks the nervous system. Jordan's family believes the H1N1 vaccine is to blame. 24 hours after he received both the seasonal and swine flu vaccines, he was hospitalized. During the 1976 swine flu scare, officials vaccinated 45 million people. Of those, almost 1,100 developed GBS. If you really look at the scientific data, it is unclear why that happened. 30 years later, the CDC monitors the current H1N1 vaccine for Guillain-Barre and other side effects. No one knows how many vaccines have been given, but the CDC says there have been 2,365 reports of adverse effects. Only 116 were considered life-threatening. There are six reported cases of GBS, but officials stress a link between them and the vaccine have not been confirmed and are being investigated. Clearly, the risk of the complication of the disease is greater than the risk of the vaccine. Now, health officials caution that up to 9,000 people get GBS every year, and the chance of getting sick from the flu is higher than the chances of getting GBS from the vaccine, Harry. You see a story like this, and you become concerned about, I don't know if there's a way to get that graph. Did you hear what she just did? They just flipped the message. All of a sudden, the flu is as bad as getting GBS. Let me replay that so you can listen to them because they have all these clever ways of how they word these things. To 9,000 people get GBS every year and the chance of getting sick from the flu is higher than the chances of getting GBS from the vaccine, Harry. You see a story like this and you become concerned about, I don't know if there's a way to get that graphic back up or not, but we know that millions and millions and millions of doses of this vaccine have right. gone out. And if you were to go to the percentage points of how many people have had adverse effects, it's infinitesimally small. That is so important, Harry, and this is what I'm telling my patients in my office. Make those numbers into a fraction. Put the number of doses of the vaccine administered in the bottom or the denominator and put the serious side effects in the top. Divide that out. We're talking 116 life-threatening adverse effects over millions and millions of vaccines. Chances are very small, but they're not zero. Point zero 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 zero. Very something. Dr. Right. Jennifer Ashton, thanks so much. Quite a team, aren't they? Okay, this one is, um, <coughs> excuse me, this one is um, from six years ago. This was um, a group you want to watch for if you're looking around at where these people hang out together is Aspen, A-S-P-E in Colorado. They have a group called the Aspen Group. And when people say stuff like, well, Jordan Peterson, he's not one of them. Well, of course he is. Go look. He talks at the Aspen Group. It is all one big club. Even people get that quote about Carlin. Carlin says, oh, it's one big club and you're not in it. Well, Carlin was also in it. <laughs> okay, so this is Fauci at the Aspen Club talking about his, uh, his 
just take a listen. So, what have we learned? And I'll summarize it in a couple of minutes. Like, what have we, what were the lessons learned of literally five administrations of dealing with varying degrees of severity of outbreaks? The first, we need better surveillance. And we have a global health security network that we've started that hopefully will get us to see things that happen before they become a pandemic. Remember, a pandemic is an outbreak before it becomes an epidemic, before it becomes a pandemic. And I think that's what we're gonna deep dive in. How do you prevent that transition? For example, the surveillance of a child recognizing that a child in Guinea got infected in December of 2013, and we didn't know that we were having an Ebola outbreak until March and April of 2014. Surveillance in the southwest part of the country with the swine flu of 2009. We could have done much better to prepare. The other thing is transparency and communication. The Chinese knew back in 2003 that this respiratory infection was not influenza. However, they didn't communicate. They've done much better since then, but had we known we were dealing with a brand new coronavirus infection, we may have been better prepared. Infrastructure and capacity building. When we went into Liberia, what we did is we created an infrastructure so that they will be able to respond to the next epidemic. The infrastructure that is associated with PEPFAR is now preventing countries from actually getting a pandemic. In addition, there needs to be coordination and collaboration, and there needs to be the development of platform technology. It is very difficult to be chasing after possible pandemics as opposed to having in place the technology like vaccine platforms that can be easily adaptable. Okay, finally, what is next? We don't know. They asked me. Somebody raised their hand. I won't tell you who it was. So what is the next one that we're going to have? That's the whole point. You can't predict. Is it yellow fever in Brazil that's now going to get into the 80s Egyptian mosquitoes and work its way up to other areas in the south, namely the Caribbean and Puerto Rico? We don't know. Are we going to have a Zika return? Is the H7N9 pre-pandemic going to turn into an explosion? It's a big unknown, but the one thing that we can be sure of, that we will continue to have emerging and re-emerging infections, it's our job to prevent them from becoming pandemics. I'm hoping we'll be able to deep dive into that over the next period of time. Thanks. See you.
Mills had that Little Piggies song, you know, talking about all of them being little piggies, including the Beatles, as a matter of fact. But <laughs> Okay, moving right along here, I just have two more to go. So let me just finish aligning these up here because I'm kind of on a roll here. Okay, so give me one second here. I have my tabs. I thought what I would do is play that song and then I would be able to um, um, get the tabs lined up. Ran out of time, so I have to stay on my specific mission here. So <laughs> let me see here. <coughs> okay, that's what I was looking for. Okay. Because here's the thing um, I did a quoted this man. And I went looking for more of his work to see what I could find on his channel. And ages ago, well, not ages ago, but when I first, in the last few months, <coughs> which seems like ages to some of us, <laughs> I've been talking about the people that started this whole radiation thing, the group, the gang, right? They did the quantum theory and quantum mechanics. Well, I tried my best to explain them, okay? <clears throat> and when I was explaining them last, I commented at the time and said, there's something about the magic science is in this thing here, that this little club has controlled or set up and controls, okay? And I think there may have been some sort of key point there where this has to, <coughs> this has to do with the manipulation of time, okay? And I'd like to preface this with a few things because I haven't recorded this a few times. I don't want to play this and then think, oh, I got to make sure I mention this later because this is it. Okay, so, um, hmm, what was my point? I wish we were in the same room and you could say, oh, yeah. Well, anyway, so these people at that specific time in the early, you know, early night, the, the group from the quantum people, um, I have a clip about what is quantum theory, okay? Because this man, um, who I played a clip of from him the other day, presented this very interesting theory. And his theory is the illusion of time, okay? And it's interesting, and I do believe that a lot of this is very true, but I would like to caution you on something. A lot of these people talking about these specific things, and I have a long background with some of these things. No, I've never joined any clubs or <laughs> But because I'm interested in things, you know, through the, all these years and stuff, there were periods that I went through the process of, you know, there were groups of people, you know, they had the Zen groups, they had the years that channeling energies was popular, the crystals, all that kind of stuff. And also, after the lawsuit in Silicon Valley was done, the only place I could possibly land was at my mother's place, and she happened to live in Sedona. So when people think, oh, you got to live in Sedona, no, I didn't pick out Sedona. Sedona is very hippie, um, new age, um, anyways, or old. Sedona is either new age or new age, old hippie, or r retired white people, okay? Um, so I always feel like I have to qualify that because 
I feel a certain danger in where they take this to the next step, okay? Because, and I'm not going to get into a large part of it here, but through the years, lots of things, because I've always had an open mind to look into different things. Now, did I hang around in these groups for a long period? No, of course not. I went to this one group where they actually trained you how to do psychic readings over the weekend and, you know, that kind of stuff. <coughs> All the way to <coughs> other things. <coughs> where people were actually doing channeling. That stuff is so dangerous. <laughs> Those evil spirits are all over the place. So the reason I'm going to this effort to preface this uh, is I tried it all. And these people have some good information. But then where it could lead you is to thinking, oh, yeah, well, they also have some videos about how I can unlock my consciousness and um, I can do all this, right? My input would be this to you, okay? Figure out your next step by what comes to you, yourself, not by what you get chanted into your head on a YouTube video, okay? <coughs> Take the information that I'm going to play to you in this very short clip about this concept of time and what all this means, right? I'm not suggesting because then these people take it to the next step. Well, join my club and we can teach you how to manipulate time and stuff, okay? Let's just stick. This is where this stuff, they, they send out some very good information, but where it gets crazy is um, the sometimes the execution of it, right? So I believe that all these things are true. But I also very strongly believe that there is a certain danger in almost following a cult-like, uh, well, here's the, here's the nibble of the crumb of which, what this reality is, right? Come on in and I'll show you how it works. So I'm sharing this with you with that very loud preface, okay? Because now is the time for all of us to work on our own strengths, okay? How does everybody keep that one foot moving in front of the other and be guided within your own yourself? Please do not go out and <laughs> just do not go out. <coughs> and I don't want to tell you what to do, but please listen to me, okay? Focus on what you're going to need moving forward and stuff. Absorb this information. Go look for more about it. The stuff with this that happened, there's lots of... And that's what I wanted to do today to capture these actual clips of these people actually saying these things, right? So we can kind of memorialize them you know, out of their own lips. Much more effective than me trying to read, read what they actually said, right? So I'm playing you these clips with a cautionary thing, okay? So first I'm going to play, um, oh, wait a minute. I didn't have this one. Oh, this is a good one. This is a real short one here. Chinese uh, over the last week or two have identified a virus in the environment. It has not yet shown to be infecting humans, but it is exhibiting what we call reassortment capabilities. In other words, when you get a brand new virus that turns out to be a pandemic virus, it's either due to mutations and or the reassortment of exchanges of genes. And they're seeing virus in swine and pigs now that have characteristics of the 2009 H1N1 
of the original 1918, which many of our flu viruses have remnants of that in it, as well as segments from other hosts like swine, when they all mix up together and they contain some of the elements that might make them susceptible to being transmitted to humans, you always have the possibility that you might have another swine flu type outbreak as we had in 2009. It's something that still is in the stage of examination. It's not so-called an immediate threat where you're seeing infections, but it's something we need to keep our eye out on just the way we did in 2009 with the emergence of the swine flu. It's called G4 is the name of it. The Chinese- They're saying that- uh, Week or two. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me, I'm very sorry. They have all these uh, pig farms ghastly stuff. So anyway, so um, this is um, the gentleman's name, and I read a, a clip from him yesterday, and then I saw this one about, his name is Dr. Bruce H. Lipton. It's called The Illusion of Time. Newtonian science, uh, time and space were direct readouts, that time was a continuously moving process and that you're either at this time or you're at this time or you're at this time. When the world of quantum mechanics evolved, it started to recognize that time was actually just a conscious expression, that according to the world of quantum mechanics, there is no time. Everything is at the moment of now. The past, the present, and the future are all here right now. It is not linear. So the issues are, can the past and the future be influenced by each other? Well, the question is, are we in the past, or are we in the present, or are we in the future at this very moment? And I bring that up, not, not to make a joke, but to make a serious biological statement. From the way we live in our consciousness, can you distinguish a conscious manifestation versus a real manifestation? Did I just create something in my head, or was that actually real, what I just saw? Biologically, you'll never know the difference. We could all be sitting here right now, but we're actually, this is a long time ago. We're not even here right now. This isn't even the real moment. How do I know it's real? Well, I see it, and I feel it, and I smell it, and I touch it, and I go, yeah, go to sleep. And in your dream state, your biology will be activated by your brain, your sensory nervous system will experience what you've already done before, and to your sleep state, can you tell if it was a real state or a dream state? Not in your sleep. Well, then how do you know if the real state you're in right now is the real state or the dream state? Well, dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something is actually strange. Wow, the conundrum of quantum physics. We don't know where we are. We're happy to pick this probable moment and be in this probable moment at the same time. Yet, according to quantum mechanics, we could have other probable instantaneous moments right now where we're not even in this reality, we're in another reality. An alternate reality. Precisely. Which reality are we in? You say, well, it's the one I'm biologically sensing, and I'm going, biologically sensing in your dream or biologically sensing in real life? The answer is you can't tell. And that's the most exciting part. 
because it really leaves open an understanding how we could go back and change the past. Or at the current moment, we can change the future. Because is this the current moment or not? Marty, you're not thinking fourth dimensionally. All of a sudden, it says, oh my goodness. The whole conventional world of everything was so ordered and regimented and understood seems to disappear in a quantum mechanical reality. <coughs> Part of what they're talking about is the fact that based on being like a game board, okay, here's what I've been saying for a long time now, and what they've been doing is they have access, some of them have found access to information that we knew that existed before because we were from an advanced society, and this is our game board, okay? So some of these people that have become doctors that will spill out part of the stuff that we're doing right now in this clip, right? don't have <coughs> the real agenda they're presenting at heart, so. But here's the thing, so, we're here, everything has been rigged within whatever period, you know, 100, 150 years. So we can look at a lot of things and they have been doling out technology. <coughs> and I don't remember if I've said this earlier in this clip or what, but like for example, airplanes do not need, commercial airplanes do not need fuel. And they've been, do they've been doling out technology that, when we came to the game board, I believe that we all came with kind of like a clean slate, right? We picked our groups and all that kind of stuff. But we did not bring our previous knowledge along with us. Well, the psychopaths brought their previous knowledge along with them because we knew from where we came from that we obviously wouldn't have needed electricity and stuff. We knew that th those things would be dangerous to us. And they logged on to this. And you can tell by their progression, which really hasn't go gone beyond the electricity and the basic radiation stuff, that they glommed on to this stuff back then. So that can almost kind of give you a progression of their own intellectual either building, stagnating, or whatever, because they really have not improved. What has improved are characters like this that will present the concept, which is in fact true, okay, but lead you over to this other bridge. Well, oh, come on, we'll learn some chanting. And I know this from experience. I was in Sedona for almost five years, okay. I also have people that at one point were very close in my life that are into this stuff. And they're the very, <coughs> remember the new age was founded with the uh, United Nations early on, okay. So none of this stuff leads out a path that, um, you know, they came up with angels and all these new age people are always saying, oh, pray to your higher angels. Well, angels actually are satanic. That halo is the ring of Saturn, so. Anyhow, I've already been talking about that along the way, so I don't really know what to tell you except that um, what exactly is it all about? And I'm going to have to close off here and take care of a few things around here. Um, so, um, what's it all
you can hear so we're going to be playing a clip about the kennedys because here is how it works the number one way a psychopath lures in the victim is by playing the victim themselves they will always set themselves up in the charming kind of underdog kind of position and just it plays out in all aspects of this whole scenario here from you know they get tossed out of this one social media place and then they get banned from this place it's always a victim thing right and then that gives their friends lots of things to talk about, you know, they, they do shows about, hey, so-and-so got banned, and then so-and-so does a show about so-and-so got banned, and it goes on and on and on. So the number one role a psychopath wants to put themselves into, number one, is that of the victim, because that draws in the more empathetic crowd, you know, those people who will feel great empathy for their plight and that kind of thing. And nobody really personifies this victim role <laughs> better than the Kennedys. And remember, they wrote this. When it comes to American political dynasties, the first family name that comes to mind is the Kennedys. They've been in the spotlight for decades and have had their fair share of controversies. The Kennedy family curse is a superstition that's been around for decades. It theorizes that members of the family are doomed to die young because they are cursed by either a family member or outside force. Join Facts First as we take a closer look at the so-called Kennedy family curse while revealing the details of each family member who's died in a tragic way. Rosemary Kennedy's Lobotomy Rosemary Kennedy was the youngest daughter of Joseph and Rose Kennedy. She was born in 1918 and died in 2005. Rosemary had a mental disability that made her slow to learn, but she was still able to read and write. It's theorized she suffered from a lack of oxygen at birth. As she grew up, it became clear she was failing to reach the same developmental milestones as other kids her age. Her parents were worried about her future, so they sent her to a special school for children with disabilities. As a young adult, Rosemary became increasingly irritable, unstable, and prone to violent mood swings. While her mental deficiencies were easier to hide when she was a child, as an adult they became very difficult to cover up. In response to these issues, Rosemary's dad arranged for her to have a prefrontal lobotomy in 1941 when she was 23. 
It was kept a secret until after it was completed, but sadly it was botched and left young Rosemary permanently incapacitated. She was unable to speak or walk without assistance for the rest of her life. Joe Kennedy Jr. was killed in action. As the eldest Kennedy's son, Joe Jr. was always a bit of an overachiever. His father, Joseph Kennedy Sr., had aspirations of him one day becoming the president. Joe Jr. had already started a life in politics when America entered the Second World War. He enlisted in the U.S. Naval Reserve in June of 1941. He trained as a naval aviator and was deployed to Britain. After successfully completing more than two dozen combat missions, Joe Jr. volunteered for a top-secret mission called Operation Anvil and Operation Aphrodite. The details of his death were kept sealed until after the war was over, but we eventually learned Joe Jr. died August 12, 1944, while serving as a land-based patrol pilot. He was posthumously awarded the Navy Cross. Following his death, Joseph Sr. transferred his aspirations of raising a future president to his next oldest son, John F. Kennedy. Before we tell you more about the Kennedy curse, be sure to give this video a like and subscribe to Facts First if you haven't already. Kathleen Kick Kennedy was killed in a plane crash. Calling Kathleen's life eventful would be a huge understatement. She was JFK's sister and arguably the Kennedy family member with the most adorable nickname. Kick experienced and accomplished quite a bit in her relatively short life. She was a debutante, Red Cross volunteer, and research assistant for the Times-Herald newspaper. Beyond that, she married the Marquess of Hardington, William Billy Cavendish, in May of 1944, making her Lady Hardington. Sadly, she was also hit with one terrible tragedy after another. In September 1944, Kick's husband died in combat just months after their marriage. At age 24, she was a widow. Only four years later, she, along with three others, died in a small plane crash in France. She was 28. Patrick Kennedy's death was a devastating blow. On August 7, 1963, Jacqueline Kennedy gave birth to a little boy named Patrick. Sadly, since the child was born premature, he lived only 39 hours before dying of complications from hyaline membrane disease. Numerous attempts were made to save his life, but nothing worked. The couple had previously suffered one stillbirth and a miscarriage, so this death was all the more so heartbreaking. Patrick's death shined a light on infantile respiratory diseases and raised the public profile of such afflictions, leading to more research. The JFK Assassination The assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 1963 was by far one of the most significant moments in U.S. history. On November 22, 1963, President Kennedy was shot while being driven through Dallas, Texas. He was campaigning for re-election, but never got the chance to serve a second term, because he was pronounced dead shortly after shots were fired. The alleged assailant, Lee Harvey Oswald, was likewise shot to death by nightclub owner Jack Ruby shortly after his arrest. Although countless conspiracy theories about the event have flooded the public consciousness, one thing is for certain. Oswald, whether he acted alone or was some kind of patsy, deeply hated everything America represented. He had a deep hatred for capitalism and had communist ties. Even though the assassination presented numerous political challenges, the tragedy that Jacqueline and the Kennedy family had to deal with was still devastating beyond measure. RFK's Assassination Robert F. Kennedy, like his brother John, was a prominent member of the Democratic Party. He served as the United States Attorney General between 1961 and 64 before holding the Senator's office for New York. Following in his brother's footsteps, in 1968, Robert was one of the leading Democratic presidential candidates. Shortly after he won the California primary on June 5, 1968, Robert was shot and killed by Sirhan Sirhan, a young Palestinian man who claimed he acted in retaliation for Robert's pro-Israeli stance during the Six-Day War in 1967. 
RFK's assassination prompted a change in the way the Secret Service does its duties. After his death, the service expanded its breadth by also protecting presidential candidates. The Chappaquiddick Incident On the evening of July 1969, Senator Ted Kennedy left a party held on Chappaquiddick Island to take fellow party guest Mary Jo Kopechny back to the ferry station. While en route to the ferry's landing, Ted's car skidded off a bridge into the water. Ted managed to escape the sinking vehicle and swim to safety, but he fled the scene and didn't report the accident to authorities until 10 a.m. the following morning. At that point, Kopechny's dead body had already been recovered from the submerged vehicle. Ted was found guilty for fleeing the scene of an accident and sentenced to a two-month suspended jail sentence. He also had his driver's license suspended for 16 months. The incident severely tarnished Ted Kennedy's reputation and soured his political aspirations. At one point, he had dreams of becoming president, but when he finally ran in the 1980 Democratic presidential primaries, he lost in a landslide to future President Jimmy Carter. David Kennedy's Overdose Death RFK's fourth son, David, almost drowned to death when he was a boy, but his dad jumped in the water and saved him. The day after his near-death experience, David witnessed his father's assassination on live TV. To cope with the trauma of losing his father in such a horrific way, David turned to recreational drugs. And after being injured in a car accident in 1973, he was left addicted to opioids. Although he tried on numerous occasions to get clean in rehab, following several non-fatal overdoses, he was never able to kick his habit. In April 1984, he was found dead of an overdose of a combination of prescription medications and cocaine. Michael Kennedy's Skiing Accident Another one of RFK's kids, Michael, died in a skiing accident in Aspen, Colorado on New Year's Eve 1997. He was evidently tossing a football while on skis with several other family members when he struck a tree. He wasn't wearing any safety equipment or helmet, and prior to the accident, the family had apparently been warned by the ski patrol to stop what they were doing. He was rushed to Aspen Valley Hospital, where he was pronounced dead a little over an hour later. JFK Jr. died in a plane crash. JFK Jr. was born two weeks after his dad was elected president, so he was only two years old when John was assassinated. In 1999, while working as an attorney in New York City, JFK Jr. flew from New Jersey to Massachusetts via Martha's Vineyard to attend a wedding. In the plane with him was his wife, Carolyn, and his sister-in-law. After the plane didn't make it to its destination on schedule and stopped responding to communications, it was reported missing. At first, investigators had hoped the Kennedys would be found alive, but the wreckage and debris of the aircraft, along with the three passengers' bodies, were discovered days later. It's believed Kennedy became disoriented while descending over the water at night with limited visibility. Now it's time to hear from you. Do you think the Kennedys truly have a curse? Let us know in the comments section below. And before you go, make sure you give this video a like and subscribe to Facts First if you haven't already. Click the bell icon to stay updated on all our latest content.